every day the decisions made by governments, industry, and consumers decide the course of our economy and the world's. Economists work at trying to make sense of all of that data to separate the signal from the noise. Most economic analysts have extensive academic credentials and training, but every once in a while, the unicorn shows up. And on this episode, we interview one of them. Joseph Poltano is young, in his early 20s, but he's already become a significant analytical voice on the economy, and he's gotten there by plunging into the data and rarely resurfacing. Poltano's newsletter, Apricotus, has become a must-read for me and many others who are thinking about the economy, jobs, and market trends. He's also setting the pace for social media use by avoiding vitriol and focusing on the data. In this episode of Hardly Working, I talk with Joseph about his nascent career as an economic pundit, building a following as an independent journalist, and its views on the most pressing issues facing our labor market. Joseph Politano, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. Um, uh, I feel like, uh, like uh, you know, the old talk radio, um, longtime fan, first time conversation. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed um, your um, your Twitter presence, and I'm really intrigued um, how somebody uh, uh, who is it's not evident because we're not on camera here, but somebody as young as you are has built up a presence, not just a a Twitter presence, but a policy influence presence. I think, Uh, uh, I think that uh, this, this is an unusual pathway. Um, So we're going to get into all of that. uh, And that's, that's why I was so excited to get you in for this conversation. Um, I like to ask people, um, generally the person sitting across from me and this is like in their fifties, sixties, sometimes as old as 80 talking about their lives and their careers and how they got to where they are and what they've learned along the way. You're pretty young. And so I'd like to hear you just talk about, you know, um, your, edu- your educational background a little bit and just some of the people who may have influenced you in the directions that you're headed uh, professionally right now. Sure. So I'll say, um, working backwards right now, like you said, my, my full-time job is that I write my, my newsletter, Apricotas, and that, you know, uh, jokingly, I say that I'm like a finfluencer to, you know, it's technically what I do on, on Twitter is my full-time job, which I'm very privileged to, to be able to do. Um, but I actually started getting interested in economics in, in undergrad. You know, I wanted to do poli-sci. I went to to the George Washington University here in D.C. Everybody who goes to GW wants to do poli-sci. Um, but, like, the memories of, of 2008 means that anyone who, who does poli-sci also is like, well, I should do something else so that I actually can, you know, make rent mm-hmm. <laughs> when I graduate. So I decided to double major in econ. And by, like, sophomore year, I was thinking, wow, this econ stuff's a lot more fun than the poli-sci stuff. Why, why was that? I, I think it was... Um, you know, I think the part of the reason that pe- I got interested in poli-sci was that it's like uh, a way to understand how institutions, systems of people interact. And I think when you um, are really studying the economy, that's what you're, you're studying at a much deeper level than 
um, or much broader level than what poli-sci gets into. No shade to the people who study poli-sci. But to me, it was just like vastly more interesting. And the tools that you learn in economics apply, you know, a lot more broadly. Um, and so I was, you know, enjoying my time at GW. I really got into development econ. I wanted to be a Peace Corps volunteer. And so when I graduated, I, I became a Peace Corps volunteer. Um, and I went to Uganda to do um, agribusiness and economic development volunteer work. That was in uh, June of 2019-ish. So obviously by uh, March of 2020, when the pandemic hit, all the Peace Corps volunteers had to be sent back to the U.S. So I was like, um, you know, back in the States, had to try to figure out something to do. Uh, I ended up getting this job at the Bureau of Labor Statistics doing sort of like admin work um, for them. And I wanted to keep, you know, talking about econ stuff. So that's when I started like actually trying to post things on, on Twitter and actually trying to write out the newsletter, which originally was just a way for me to like participate in econ more than I could at my nine to five job. And then eventually grew into being large enough that it is my nine to five job now. So you're no longer at BLS. I'm no longer at BLS. at BLS. Okay. So how did I? I used to uh, work at the Department of Labor. I was at the Employment and Training Administration. Um, I was the acting ass- assistant secretary for a little while. Uh, and um, I'm curious, how did your bosses respond to your um, to your social media work? I will say they were all um, very, very understanding. It was very funny. Uh, If if you know, it's like obviously I'm on social media. I feel like everyone my age has a social media and they they have guidelines where like, okay, you can't talk about politics. You know, you can't talk while you're on the job. Very obvious stuff like that. Um, But, you know, even if you're a government employee, especially if you're a low level government employee like I was, you have First Amendment rights. You can say whatever you want, you know. You say you you love or hate the president and they can't mm-hmm. stop you. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I didn't really, you know, uh, I didn't run it by them <laughs> when I started. And because I, I figured like, yeah, nobody's going to care. Five people are going to see this. And, <laughs> yeah. and then eventually they, you know, discovered it and, and they discovered it because someone from I, I want to say it was the New York Times, like emailed the press office at mm-hmm. BLS. So who is this them. guy? Yeah, who they is? were trying to get in touch with me. And I was like, no. <laughs> And so so I had to explain all this to them. And then I had to like tell this person in the New York Times, like, no, go talk to someone who actually works at the press office. Don't talk to me. But, you know, the the people at the the BLS press office were very understanding about it. And they said something. uh, I remember the email. I was like, I was so apologetic because I felt so bad that I'm like wasting this guy's time with, you know, having to deal with 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 my nonsense. Um, And he was like, don't worry about it. You know, you have a right to say whatever you want to say. And it's our job you know, to protect that, that well, right. I mean, this isn't just any, any kind of thing at the labor department, you know, this is pretty critical work for the labor department, you know, like there's very, very few things other than probably health and safety regulations that draw as much attention as the stuff that comes out of BLS, you know, unemployment and so on. So I, I was just really curious, like just watching you from the outside, not understanding what your job was there's like well they've hired this really smart young economist who is like 
out there talking about these critical issues. And I, I, my experience of working with BLS was like, you know, we will talk to you. Don't talk to us, you know, kind of, uh, don't ask too many questions about what we're doing because this is confidential and, you know, can shift trillions of dollars in value in the market if we don't talk about it in the right way. So I was really interested to, to see that. So you never encountered any of that kind of, uh, pushback in terms of, you know, you're a BLS employee and you're talking about economics and that lends a certain kind of weight to what you say. Yeah. I, I mean, I had to be careful, you know, uh, how I was identifying myself. I had to, to correct people who like got my occupation wrong, but in general, like I was, I didn't have access to any non public data. data. So yeah. anything I was using, anybody on, on the street could use. And I wasn't doing anything uh, beyond, you know, talking about the public data, what it said, and then putting, you know, my own opinions, you know, clearly identified as my own personal opinions on there. So so um, you haven't done anything beyond your bachelor's then yet, is that I have right? Not. You have not. <laughs> All right. So this is, this is for, especially for young people listening out there in the world, I think we do get some college students who listen in on this podcast through our college networks. Um, it's just really, uh, in many ways, it's just such an encouraging thing to see because so so much of social media engagement is uh, non-substantive. You know, it's like trolling. This is how young people using social media sort of skyrocket into, you know, recognized figures is by by engaging in a kind of debate, you know, personalized attacks and so on that that draw attention. But you have chosen a very different path here, which is you're actually talking about substance and uh, attracting attention that way, which I think is really uh, important. Have, have you thought about that at all, just in terms of the way that you engage on social media? Yeah, I, I will say I think, you know, technically I'm a journalist, if you want to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. And I'm an independent journalist, right? And so I live and die based on, you know, how much people trust me, trust what I have to say. And I think that a lot of these, like, personal internet slap fights, to put it put it yeah. nicely, like, they they devalue your image and they, they show that you're, like, less trustworthy if you're going to engage in this. And, you know, I think everybody is tempted to, to dunk on, like, an opinion that they see is bad on the internet. But very rarely have I, like, been openly hostile to someone and then not, like, regretted it mm. very shortly after. Mm-hmm. And very rarely have I have I written about something that's, like, a polemic debate in the news and then not regretted it afterwards. I think the best way to approach it is to say, like, obviously there's news and you have to, like, address the news, but you can get into that in a way that's not a personal contest between two people, but is, like, trying to engage with uh, the substantive beliefs of the people you disagree with um, or even just, you know, the opinions that are out there. And you can do that in a way that's in good faith. Mm-hmm. And if you do that in good faith, even people who like disagree with you or are very uh, politically different than you will at least appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I can see who follows me on Twitter and I can see who who reads my newsletter. And I joke about this all the time where it's like <laughs> the people who read the newsletter 
are a different subset of people than who follow me on Twitter. Mm. And I think are also like more come from a broader political spectrum than the people on Twitter. I think Twitter, you know, uh, filters down the debate in a way that's not as productive. Mm. And so that's, you know, how I think about writing. Mm -hmm. You know, I want it to be something where even if the people who uh, read my newsletter, who I think are politically completely wrong, at least get some value from it. And I think there's, there's, you know, some importance in being seen as impartial as a journalist, you know, not in trying to give credit to an idea where no credit is due, but to at least appreciate people in the ideas that they come from, in the background that they have. Yeah, it's just, uh, it just strikes me as a difference between, you know, social media as a dopamine generator and so social media as a sort of uh, ideas factory, you know, like you're, you're putting stuff together rather than just just seeking to stimulate the release of, you know, these <laughs> neuro neurotransmitter stuff that is undeniably effective in terms of attracting people uh, to, to what you're saying, but there's just not much value on the other side. Okay, so let's get into the substance of what you've been working on. Tell us the name of your newsletter and what it means and why you chose it. So the newsletter is uh, Aprikitas. Aprikitas. Yes. It's a K sound. But it's spelled with a C because the Latin word. And and every day since I've picked that Latin word, I've regretted it because even I didn't know how it was pronounced at first. <laughs> I should have gone with like Helios or something. But it's it's Latin word for uh, like sunniness. So when I was thinking about like what am I going to name this newsletter, I was thinking about um, you know trying to keep this positive upbeat tone trying to keep this like good faith analysis of the world trying to like seek truth and uh i feel like the sun is like a good good metaphor for things like that shining a light on what's Mm -hmm. going on uh developing good understanding and so i write um twice a week trying to get to three times a week uh as an ambitious goal (laughs) about like global economic data you know what's going on in the u.s economy in the global economy Sometimes it's like uh, an academic question. Sometimes it's like a narrow question about you know, what's going on in the news. What what was the most recent inflation data? Like what's driving uh, price increases? And sometimes it's like this meta analysis because I'm a data nerd. So sometimes I want to talk about the data um, and like what's going into the sausage there and why, you know, which, what data is more valuable, what data is less valuable maybe, and like what could be causing the data to shift in weird ways. Fascinating. Okay, so Epictetus, and you're trying to shine a light on the functioning of the U.S. economy, the functioning of the global economy, and you like the numbers. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, This is, uh, again, unusual profile for somebody, a successful social media maven. Um, Talk about, you know, the big mystery that we're, that, everyone, not everyone, most people are struggling with in the policy world is trying to understand the post-pandemic. It's not really, we're not really post-pandemic, but the uh, less acute phase of uh, the pandemic. And what's your, what's your story when you look at the data? What's your, how do you put the story together from uh, April 2020 or March 2020? To now what's happened and and um what are the big factors that have influenced the performance of the economy 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the big thing, obviously, is COVID. Um, and I think sometimes, especially recently, it gets overshadowed as, like, an explanation for what's going on in the economy. You know, uh, there are things that, say, the Federal Reserve can control, the people at the White House can control, and things they have limited influence over. And if you're talking about, like, Jerome Powell's influence over uh, the virus, very minimal. <laughs> But I think, you know, you have this pandemic. Uh, understandably, countries had to shut down large swaths of the economy for public health reasons. In the U.S., you know, if you look at, like, European economies, they mostly did these big furlough schemes. So they're paying businesses to keep workers on payroll. In the U.S., there, there wasn't that technical capability. So in lieu of furlough schemes, you had, like, the big unemployment benefits, the stimulus checks, things like that. You had all this money going out the door, basically just push the economy as fast as possible when reopening became more safe so that people had you know, balance sheet buffer to be able to pay rent and things like that. And also were able to spend on normal consumer goods despite you know, losing their job. Since then, you, know, you had a really big sur- resurgence in the U.S. economy in 2021. I think things were really optimistic then. You had like... So if you, you were to chart maybe reopening starts when people are getting vaccinated in March, April 2021, that's when you really start to see like inflation creeping back up. So you have this big impulse of spending that went to households. Households really sat on it for a, a long time. And then spending started to really pick up in 2021. You have like the initial bursts of inflation, which were mostly you know, random goods. Cars were like the big one. Then it was airfare. Then it was like oil. And then suddenly it's getting like broader and broader. And then this year, the big thing was obviously uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine at the start of the year. That sets like global oil markets, global energy markets, global food markets into a bit of a tailspin. So you see prices rising even more from that. And you're just seeing this like uh, big spending impulse. So if you look at like nominal gross domestic product, it's it's at like a 10, uh, between a 7.5 and 10% growth rate depending on what data you look at uh, annually and that level of growth in spending necessarily generates inflation so that's why you have a ton of inflation in the u.s and uh, similar the less extreme stories across the world and now the big story is the feds raised rates they look like they're going to raise rates to like five percent ish Depending on when you listen to this podcast, that might be horribly out of date information because <laughs> things are changing all the time. But they're raising interest rates, trying to get uh, inflation back under control. And the big question mark is, can they get inflation back without a recession? And I would say right now, it's like a coin flip. Mm. Markets are, are saying 50% chance they, they fix it without causing big problems, 50% chance it causes big Somebody problems. Somebody say to me the other day, uh, that they thought we we're we've been in a recession since March. What do you think? I think there's definitely been a real growth slowdown. So in in the U.S., if you were to look at like real GDP growth, it's like really tiny, slightly negative, slightly positive. We're waiting for like the final data there. I personally, you know, I I don't think they're going to call it an official recession uh, starting in that time period because you know. They are mostly concerned about personal income and employment, both of which have likely been increasing since then. 
But I think people legitimately, you know, when, when normal people say recession, what they mean is the economy feels really bad, mm-hmm. not like the industrial Technical. production indexes yeah. are going down. And the economy definitely feels really bad for a lot of people right now. Yeah. So uh, one thing you haven't talked about too much in this story is the labor market. Tell us about what you think the labor market story is, um, because that's that's where we spend most of our time thinking about jobs and training and education. And um, what's the story with the U.S. labor market right now? Yeah, so I think that that um, first point, like before the pandemic, you had what was historically, at least for the last twenty years, a pretty good labor market. You know, you had employment metrics that were the highest in like 20 years but still lower than the the 1998 you know all-time highs you had unemployment which was at like a a relative low and you had pretty strong comparative wage growth with low inflation i still think there was like a, a decent amount of room to improve especially on the employment metrics but all in all it was like not the worst time especially compared to how things were Pandemic hits, you have massive increase in unemployment. Like I said, you have all this spending to get people back to work, and that is very successful. You know, so if you look at uh, employment metrics, they've all basically recovered to where you were pre-pandemic. If you look at unemployment metrics, all basically recovered to where they were pre-pandemic. And if you look at wage growth, it's like really high. And it's in fact, you know, if you're the Federal Reserve, that's their big worry is that it's actually too high and it's like going to generate more inflation. Um, Are those real wages or nominal wages? Nominal wages really high. But mm-hmm. it, I, I, I think the distinction there is like hard to hard to make because of how volatile inflation is. But still, you're saying uh, employment metrics are pretty good. The wage metrics are at least okay on a real basis and really good on a nominal basis. And then the Federal Reserve starts raising interest rates this year. And, you know, they have, like, a fairly strong uh, Phillips curve model in their head. They're thinking, better explain what a Phillips curve model right, is. Right, so they're thinking there's a trade-off between unemployment and inflation. If you have really high inflation, you've got to raise unemployment in the short term to get inflation back down. If you have, uh, you know, really high unemployment, you're going to get really low inflation. And so they're looking at, right now, they're saying inflation is 8%. The unemployment rate is 3.7%, and they think to get inflation back down to their target about 2%, they're going to need to raise the unemployment rate to like 4.5%. That was their most recent forecasts. Yeah, and 4.5% unemployment is not terrible. It's not. It's definitely not historically terrible. I think um, there's something you said for the idea that like, if you were following, if this was the Federal Reserve of like 1980, mm-hmm. and they saw, you know, there been unemployment, there been. they're like, okay, we're, or, excuse me, eight percent inflation, like, okay, we're gonna bring the unemployment way high. But I think also, you know, you have the story of the last 20 years where employment in the U.S. has been lagging, like has never caught up with where it was in in the late 1990s, and countries like Canada or Australia or Japan or countries in Europe have all had higher employment rates. Like the U.S. is a And a you're talking about labor laggard. force participation? Is that what you mean? Right, right. Labor force participation rates. But even, I'm just, I, I like to look at prime age employment rates. So like the share of mm-hmm. working age Americans who have a job. That number is actually down 2%-ish from where it was in 1998. 
and it's much lower than it is in other high income countries. Like 80, what is it? 82, 83%? 82% was like the high right now. It's at like 80. At 80. Okay. So, and you're saying that we should be at 82. We're at 80. And so there's room for growth there. Um, I'm I'm saying from a historical perspective, I don't think there's anything that's like so radically changed in the U.S. economy since 1990. That means you can't get to 82 at least. Mm-hmm. And I think also from a like comparative perspective, all the other high income economies in the world, even like high income economies that are less dynamic than the United States, perform better on employment metrics. So I still think, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement. So even if you're I know four and a half percent unemployment doesn't sound bad to from a historical perspective but i think you know if you're looking at employment rates it still is pretty bad so what's what's your theory of the case why why has prime age labor force participation why is it down i think it's really like two things the first one being much more important than the second one and and the first one in my mind is just that you had two really big recessions in the united states in 2001 and 2008 that took several decades to recover from. You know, and these were slowdowns that started and were concentrated in the U.S. uh, and for whom the labor market effects were much stronger in the U.S. than in countries abroad. So like like I said, you have the 2001 recession where prime prime age employment goes down significantly and it doesn't catch up before 2008. I think like that was the jobless recovery, quote unquote, leading up to the Great Recession. Obviously, the Great Recession was very bad and took um, more than a decade to recover from fully. And so just you know, pr- purely from that perspective, I think uh, there's a large body of people who want to work, you know, and I don't think there are these uh, institutions in the U.S. that are preventing them from working. I think the big story of the last 20 years is like the macro impact story. Secondary to that, the macro impact is the macro impact being, you know, you had these two big recessions, okay, permanent scar to employment, you know, permanent reduction in in U.S. capacity. And if you didn't have those recessions, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, maybe you're at 85 or 86 percent. Right. Um, And I think the other story is um, and it's hard to quantify, like how much this this matters. And it's also hard to quantify because I think these two are related. But like the, um, for lack of a better word, loss of opportunity or, or, or despair situation. Mm-hmm. So you talk about uh, like the opioid epidemic where that's definitely partly an outgrowth of the Great Recession. You know, people's economics fortunes are worsened uh, and that makes them more likely to fall into, you know, addiction or, or other problems. Um, but it's also definitely like, a catalyst, mm-hmm. a self-catalyzer, where it's like, okay, if people are victims of these sorts of systems, it becomes less likely that they're going to be able to get a job in the future, that they're going to be able to get a high-paying job. You know, you see those opportunities shrink. Mm-hmm. And in large parts of America, I think that's uh, an important story. And maybe you could also tack on, like, uh, we live in D.C., but there's definitely big cities where you say, they haven't building, been building enough housing, so people can't move to a place like New York or Los Angeles for opportunity. I don't think that's a big change. You know, that was also the case in the 1990s. 
unfortunately. But that's also something where if you're looking at it as like what's stopping people from getting jobs, I think that's a big story too. Mm, sort of um, contributing to lack of geographic mobility within the labor market. And yeah. Move. Yeah, no, that's a good point. What do you make of the retirement question? I see a lot of people talking about this right now, that one of the major contributors to the labor shortage that we're experiencing is that we effectively had a year and a half to two years worth of retirements in one year during the pandemic. Uh, and that's that's what shrank the labor pool suddenly. Uh, and that's why we're having a hard time sort of backfilling um, the economy. Does, do you think that makes sense? I think... I would say maybe a little bit. So Nick Bunker, who's the economist at Indeed, has done a lot of great work on this. I think people view retirement as like a, a permanent thing. Um, but when you look, most a lot of people who retire, unretire. Mm -hmm. And it's not always for you What's know, the economic proportion? Reasons. Do you know? Do you know what the proportion is of people who come back into the labor market after they supposedly retire? I, I do not know the exact proportion. I'm remembering the unretirement rate. So like the monthly rate is like 2%. Okay. Um, but I don't, I didn't, I couldn't tell you like a longitudinal. Okay. It's bad. I should know that. <laughs> That's but right. The point being is that people retire and sometimes, you know, for economic reasons, but a lot of the times for personal reasons, you know, they decide that they want to continue working. Um, and I think you saw a lot of this during the pandemic. Obviously, like you said, the retirement rate went up. Pretty dramatically, because if you're uh, an older worker who's close to retirement, you know, kind of makes sense that if the pandemic hits, you don't want to actually go to work anymore. Um, but I think we saw a, a big influx of these people coming back to the labor market as wage growth got, uh, as wage growth improved, as the pandemic abraded, as like, you know, safety increased for these people as vaccination rates went up. So if you look at like uh, Employee America, which is a DC based think tank, they did a great report on this. So if you look at who the missing workers are as a proportion, so where employment rates have declined, the only big decline was in very old people who had part-time jobs, right? So you're, you're talking about people in their, their 70s or 80s who are working part-time. That was a big decline, but I don't think that's enough to explain uh, the labor shortage story. So I think if you're looking at um, older workers now, if you're saying... The reason why they're they're missing, um, and this is like very morbid, but like it's people who passed away during the pandemic. Those are the real missing workers mm -hmm. more than people who retired permanently during mm -hmm. the pandemic. They retired, retired. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Okay, so so we've got this pretty hot economy in the sense of wages and relatively low unemployment and yet we need to be doing a lot better in terms of getting people who can work who should be working back into the economy have you thought any more or have you i know you're not a workforce policy person but i'm just curious have you thought about um that question of what could be done to try to attract some of those workers to come back is it strictly a wage question? Are there other things that we need to be doing? I think it's definitely uh, um, partly a wage question. I would say um, some other things that I think about as big constraints on the economy, on, on the labor force specifically right now. Um, 
I think about childcare as a big mm-hmm. one. So you can actually look. Um, BLS asks people if who aren't working, you know, who have a job aren't working that week. Why aren't they working? And one of the big reasons now is childcare issues, and that's like increased dramatically mm-hmm. since the start of the pandemic for you know pretty obvious reasons. Um, but you do think of that as like a system that that holds um, especially women back in the economy is that there's really no structured support for childcare in the U.S. And, you know, we lost the the child tax credit, um, which was the enhanced child tax credit, which was like the biggest push for um, something close to that that we got during the pandemic. So that's something I think about a lot. Uh, I also think about like the U.S. really doesn't have great active labor market policies. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that there's a lot of people who... An active labor market policy is... uh, What do you mean when you say that? Institutional efforts to find jobs for people who lose jobs or to encourage people who have skills to develop further skills and match uh, employees with employers. We have a a comparatively weak uh labor or workforce development system in the united states yes that's that's what i would say and i think we have you so you have a lot of situations where um people who work in an industry that um is shrinking don't see further opportunities have a difficult time moving to places with new opportunities and don't have a system of institutions designed to like help them redevelop skills and so they can get left behind and i think that that's something that like structurally holds back the u.s labor market but i i will also say like i think people don't give enough credit where credit is due Mm -hmm. you know i think that if even if you kept all the same institutions that we have now in the ways that they're flawed you know the the flawed health insurance system that the u.s has the flawed child care system that the u.s has i think purely on on a macro basis that you could get the U.S. to a much uh, better employment situation. And um, I think, I'm hoping <laughs> that people will look back on um, this era of like worrying about labor force participation rates, kind of in the same way that people looked back at, at uh, how we worried about labor force participation rates in 2012, where people were like, okay, well, uh, maybe it's video games, maybe it's opportunity, maybe it's, um, you know, a structural shortage of opportunities for subsets of people. Um, but by like 2016, it was clear that it was just, the economy wasn't that good mm. <laughs> in 2012. It just needed more time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and we can see a little bit of that going on right now with, um, you know, uh, nominal wage increases reaching such a point that we actually see the unemployment rate ticking up a little bit suggesting that there are people coming off the sidelines um, back into the labor market. Yeah, and I'll also say that if you look at um, people who aren't in the labor force but want a job now, so the way that the U.S. classifies this is you're unemployed if you want a job now and are actively looking, but you can be not in the labor force and still say that you want a job right now. There's um, actually more of those people than there are unemployed people in the United States. Mm. And that number, not in the labor force, one to job now, is like a million higher than it was before the pandemic. Mm. So I mm. still think there's, you know, a, a good, a substantial amount of people mm-hmm. who want work and are actively looking for work. Mm. And mm-hmm. so I'm not quite as worried about this, like the the labor force participation issues. 
um, in the long run. Okay, so you've given us, I think, a good picture of sort of the view of the economy from Joey Politano's standpoint. (laughs) Uh, How does this interact with what's going on internationally? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot. It's a crazy time uh, in the global economy. I think there's, it's a funny situation where if you had talked to me in like uh, mid-2021 and said, who is doing the best economically, who's doing the worst, I would have put the U.S. in like, not quite the back of the pack, but definitely like not in the front. Mm-hmm. And now you're in a situation where you're you're putting the U.S. you know in the front of the pack alongside only a few other countries, maybe like Canada or, or Australia in terms of economic strength. Um, because... You have European economies that are really struggling uh, amidst the, the energy shortage and the war in Ukraine. And you have uh, a Chinese economy that is really struggling among the zero COVID policies and the um, property market situation that's been deteriorating in China for like more than a year now. And so if you think about like a lot of um, U.S. industry and U.S. manufacturing, I think, is benefiting tremendously from um, the fact that European countries' industries are are struggling. So especially the very heavy industries uh, and things like chemical manufacturing that um, require a lot of energy or direct inputs of natural gas, the U.S. is benefiting from. And the U.S. is benefiting directly from the fact that we export like a ton of, of natural gas. Um, and so that's been like a big story. And then I think the second thing is we've seen this big push for so industrial. Can I just interrupt? Cause so you're saying that we're doing well because we have the resources, we have the inputs that are necessary. Some of our trading partners right now are short on the inputs, uh, and therefore we're able to produce and they are not able to produce. Yeah. That okay. directly. And just the indirect impact of like, you know, um, if you're getting that extra benefit, it spills over into other industries. It's not just like a manufacturing story, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I do think that has been like a very big boon um, to the U.S. over the last, say, nine months or so. What's our balance of trade situation right now? It's, um, so the U.S. has like, obviously really big deficit, which is normal mm-hmm. um, given that we're, global reserve currency people want u.s dollars for that reason and the u.s you know imports a ton of of goods but the um deficit has been shrinking a little bit in recent months uh as as we're exporting more energy um and i think the big story uh and i wrote about this in in a recent piece is that it's like shifting in important ways so less trade with China and Russia, more trade with uh, countries like Vietnam, Taiwan, um, Indonesia, Malaysia. I was actually looking at this recently, and Vietnam jumped ahead of Japan, just very slightly ahead of Japan, mm-hmm. as the fourth biggest source of imports for the U.S. And on a net basis, so like the trade deficit with Vietnam is bigger than with any country besides china Hmm. now that's like you know kind of (laughs) it's a it's a distant second place but it's it's second place and it's a situation where imports from vietnam have tripled that just has to be driving the chinese crazy 
given the, <laughs> given the regional rivalries and uh, you know the the um, it, it, what it sounds like is like China has been the workshop you know for the United States and now there's still the workshop but Vietnam is becoming a workshop uh, in terms of uh, producing these low, uh, lower cost uh, imports um, that we're so dependent upon in the manufacturing sector. Yeah, and if so, if you look at like China's trade, they they actually have um, uh, a record trade surplus, right? But it's mostly with European countries mm. um, and with closer Asian economies, mm. um, and they've really prioritized um, export manufacturing during the last two years. For very obvious reasons, you know, they have these strong business relationships that they're trying desperately to maintain and having um, the the zero COVID policies disrupt them, they view as like a long-term threat. They don't want to be seen as unstable trading partner more than they already are. But um, you saw there's been like lots of crazy stuff in, in China um, going with that property bubble. But I think something people also forgot before the uh, the lockdowns was that China was in like very desperate energy shortage and was actually pulling a lot of uh, LNG from the United States. They had this big uh, spat with the Australian government that they basically papered over because they got so desperate for coal mm. imports that mm. they wanted. They were like, okay, we, <laughs> we forget about that. Forget right about now, that. But... We need the coal right now. <laughs> um, and so it's been like a very difficult um, situation for them. And if you look, especially for consumers for average people in China, those have been like the people who've been squeezed the most economically over the last few years. Um, so um, typically when the U.S. has to raise interest rates, it, it hurts us. It hurts our businesses internationally in terms of exports. It sounds like that isn't, at least in the energy sector, it's probably dominated by the a question dominated by the energy sector doing a lot of exporting. Um, but is that is that a factor in our trade right now? Is with the appreciating dollar, uh, is that hurting our um, exports the way it normally does? I I don't think so. So I wrote this big piece um, a while ago about you know dollar exchange rate pass through. So you think about this as like an important channel for inflation in a lot of countries. Mm-hmm. If you import a lot of goods, the value of your currency compared to the currency of your import partners can mean a lot for um, how the price of goods develops, what, what inflation is going to look like. Um, and you've seen like the U.S. dollar has been on a really big tear mm-hmm. since the start of this year, um, rising in value compared to like every other their trading partner. Um, and I think... For one, a lot of that is definitely like the interest rate differential. If you look at the United States raising interest rates more than in, mm-hmm. in Europe, more than in the United Kingdom, more than in Japan, that's you know going to raise the value of the dollar. But also it's that the U.S. is a big producer and now a net exporter of energy um, and those you know major economies I just listed, the European Union, Japan, um, and China are big importers of energy. And that energy is is priced in dollars, and so that's been, um, you know, a bigger deal for terms of trade. And I also think just uh, energy on that strict manufacturing side, where if you think about importing energy, literally 
and also importing like embedded energy manufacturing goods that require energy intensive production processes also been you know a big boon for the United States and so uh, that's good for like a broader economic perspective but it probably means that the appreciation of the dollar we've seen is not going to have as big an impact on inflation as it would historically mm. and historically it has had a very little impact mm. on inflation because even though we import a lot of stuff the US economy is really big yeah. <laughs> and so imports aren't that big a share of GDP yeah okay let's talk a little bit about the tech sector um, which is an uh, an area that I have a lot of interest in um uh, tech in this country has benefited greatly over the last 20 years from very low interest rates and lots of venture capital and so on. What's going on in the tech sector now in this context of uh, trying to get a handle on inflation and raising interest rates? Yeah, so I think um, people have jokingly talked about like a tech session. So mm-hmm. you, if you look at like the major... Tech companies, a lot of them are doing really poorly. Um, if you look at all of the venture capital firms, they're all like um, talking about tightening their belts and and um, being less adventurous and like wor- being more worried about the macro environment. I do think a lot of that is, you know, raising interest rates, um, just having this sort of uh, tighter monetary policy. And if you think about you know, a venture capital investment is like the riskiest kind of investment that there is. Mm-hmm. When you're you're tightening monetary policy, you're trying to get people to take less risk. So, of course, it's going to hit venture capital, you know, especially hard. Uh, I think there's also this like it, kind of cyclical story that we've seen before. You know, you had the, the 90s tech boom, and that was in a period of comparatively high interest rates. You know, but people were still obsessed with the idea of like the internet, and you had a lot of these companies that were trading on valuations that they couldn't, that they didn't meet. Uh, I think you saw a lot of that with like crypto stuff over the last year or so. Um, I think you've, you're seeing that with like a lot of companies taking out these very, very risky bets with tons of money poured into like very speculative technology. I'm thinking of like. Facebook renaming their company Meta and like pouring however much billions of dollars into VR stuff. Yeah, that hasn't gone well, has that it? That has not gone well. People do not like that. <laughs> um, but I think maybe there, there's two sides of this where I think people are overestimating on one side and underestimating on another. So I think people have overestimated so far the impact of like the, the big layoffs in the tech sector. It's actually very funny because you had these like record layoffs in the tech sector um, last month, and if you looked at like the the employment data, it went up, you know, in all the tech related fields. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, sometimes people substitute like how Facebook and Amazon are doing for right. how tech as a really big sector, mm-hmm. you know, that contains a lot of companies is doing. Mm-hmm. And it's not quite the same. Um, well, you know, it was interesting because I had this conversation with a guy out in a operating a startup in redwood city and he talked about uh this was last spring so before before the interest rate hikes really got going and and things started to get tight but he was complaining about uh the misallocation of talent within silicon valley and within the tech sector more generally these big firms were buying up a lot of the talent as a 
you know, he's, I think he's a little paranoid, but, uh, you know, like this is a deliberate strategy to choke competition. Um, you know, like, we'll just, we won't give these people much to do, but we will hire them just so that other people can right, hire labor them. hoarding. Yeah. Labor hoarding. And, uh, and, uh, his, uh, his view of it was we need, you know, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of demand outside these big firms, that isn't being met and that, um, uh, you know, if we just get those people, some of those people spread out in the industry, we'd be in a better, the whole industry would be in a better uh, situation. I actually saw um, Eric Brynholson saying basically the same thing last week or the week before about, you know, the, uh, the tech recession is having the, this effect that you're talking about, you know, these big companies are laying off, but this there's no shortage of actual demand for the workers. Which I was surprised in looking at one of the companies how many engineers they had laid off. You know, I I would have thought that the engineers would be the last people to go, um, but uh, in one of the companies, it really looked like uh, you know an awful lot of engineers were being uh, were being cut loose. Uh, people who were actually doing the you know, the design and, and build of uh, new products. Anyway, do you have any response to that? Yeah, I, I would say I think, you know, the, the flip side of this is that if you look at um, Silicon Valley over like the last, just say since the start of the pandemic, you know, you see you saw this really big run up in employment. You know, it's actually one of the few sectors where if you look, you can't even spot when COVID started, because they were just mm. hiring, you know, through COVID for obvious reasons. Um, and it's also had really big uh, run up in compensation because a lot of this is equity compensation that's like tied to the valuation of these companies. The valuation went up a lot. Um, and so I think you are seeing like a big drop off in compensation. And uh, I'm not quite sure you're going to see the same drop off in employment, like you said. Yeah. I think there's like a plausible, like semi-plausible story about labor hoarding where, you know, if you think about your your traditional natural monopolist, like they're probably going to engage in some labor hoarding because they want to maintain their position. Um, and I think that's especially the case in tech where, um, as we've seen with something like Facebook, the tides can move against you really quickly if you're not prepared. Um but then it's hard to gauge, like, okay, if if Facebook was engaged in all this labor hoarding, why were they so bad at it? <laughs> you know, you'd think they'd be doing a better job with this. And so some of this, um, and I, I don't want to minimize this totally, but, like, the VC business model, right, is that you have 99 uh, Hail Marys and that one of them is caught. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I think people look and they, you can point to 99 things that went wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's 100 if in a really bad year that go wrong. Uh, and that's partly just like the natural cycle of, of the innovation. Of the, sure. Right. Of innovation of how the system mm-hmm. works. And so, you know, I, I do. We all m- make fun of Facebook for like, throwing <laughs> however much money into the matter. But like, like they made a, they threw a Hail Mary and some Hail Marys don't work out sometimes. You know, there's a, a, a question of do you want facebook to be one throwing hail marys but um i think if you had if you talk to mark zuckerberg i think you would also acknowledge that like yeah this is you know a, a big push 
with a small chance of success, but in that small chance is like a ton of money if it works out. Yeah, and I, I suspect that even if it isn't uh, Meta or Facebook that ends up benefiting from what they're doing, somebody else is going to. Uh, there will be developments in that space as a result of those investments that get you know chipped off and or somebody else figures out, well, this is what they did wrong and we'll fix this and it'll work. It'll work great. So one, one other uh, thing I will say, yeah. so, cause this is touching on like both the labor point and like the tech point is, um, I read this great article. I think it was in, in Buzzfeed yesterday. Don't quote me on where it came from. Um, but it was talking about, you know, tech workers with H1B visas. Um, and yeah. if, you know, so that, that visa, if you lose your job, you have yeah. 60 days to get a new job or yeah. you're no longer allowed to be in the United States. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the people in, interviewed here were, you know, these are very smart people who came to the United States, have lived here for several years, worked for American companies in San Francisco. And they're talking about, I'm just going to go back home because I'm sick and tired of this immigration system that's mm-hmm. treating me so poorly. Yeah. And so... That's one thing that I actually do worry about a lot. It's like these are some of the smartest people in the world mm-hmm. who have chosen to come uh, work in America, who wanted to be a part of this country, and the immigration system has let them down by, yeah. you know, subjecting them to this. And I think a lot of them, I have seen like a big push from people in Silicon Valley to get people who have these visas into other companies so they can stay in the United States. But it still is, you know, tragic uh, um, tragic loss for them and a tragic loss for the United States in my mind. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that we are, it, it, it's the, among all the irrational policies that we have and systems that we have, this is among the most ra- irrational because it, it inf- there's so much potential gain in it if it's done right. And so the losses uh, of not associated with not fixing it are so gigantic you know it's it's a huge loser for the united states and we talk about you know we we're yeah. talking about earlier you threw um we were throwing billions of dollars at um uh, semiconductor companies and we're going to struggle to retain the talent needed to build operate run those companies because the people who want to be in the u.s want to work in the u.s want to live here mm-hmm. want to be american citizens aren't being allowed to yeah no that's that's the fundamental irrationality of it um it's the only people that we're punishing here really are ourselves um uh, in, as a as a country uh joey thanks so much for your time this has been fascinating and i really look forward to continuing to follow all of your work uh on twitter and in your newsletter it's all fascinating and really, I just want to congratulate you on what you've achieved, uh, which I think is really significant and is going to bear a lot of fruit for you and for others. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.